0: Welcome to Making Sense of Automation, powered by BEA. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making Sense of Automation, live
1: discussions, uh, sessions addressing challenges and resources in automation. My name is Camila Esq with BEA, and today uh, our guest is Steve uh, Kashik. Uh, he's the principal manager at UL. Um, He has uh, quite some years of experience and he's going to be telling us everything uh, about UL and his participation uh, through his years of experience. Uh, With us also, we have uh, Jeff Dunn. He's the manager from Codes and Standards at BEA. Jeff and Steve, welcome.
0: Thanks, Camilla, for the intro. I'm Jeff Dunham with BEA Sensors and Steve Kuzik with UL uh, is on the line as well. We're going to tag team on a uh, presentation decoding UL325 and entrapment protection requirements. So let's get started. Whether in a fast-paced environment, utilizing safety or utilizing heavy equipment or access points in a secure location, we're faced with potential dangers. Codes and standards exist to help protect pedestrians in these types of settings from unnecessary harm. Join us as Steve Kuzik of UL and Jeff Donamy of BEA Sensors, Americas navigate the UL325 standard and entrapment protection. And before we get started, I'm going to turn my my video feed off. That way you're not looking at me moving around or making hand motions. That way we can focus on the uh, presentation. Topics and agenda for the day. We have 10 topics and you'll see this at each, at the beginning of each next topic. And it should be the highlighted version is what we're gonna cover next. So introductions, we've done that. And uh, let's continue on with some further introductions uh, for Steve and myself. So here's some of the uh, accolades for Steve and his many years of service with UL, UL325, 31 years product safety experience, 23 years in the gate and door industry. And Steve is a valuable person for the industry and participates with the trade associations uh, affiliated with our, with our industry. And the very last uh, bullet point, I'll say Steve is an avid uh, vintage Japanese motorcycle enthusiast. And if you ever want to uh, bend his ear or discuss that topic, I'm sure he will definitely like to hear, our, uh, hear your story and he'll uh, converse uh, with you as well on that.
1: Yes, sir. I concur.
0: <laughs> thanks steve here's a little bit on myself uh, codes and standards facilitator uh, at bea sensors for actually for two two completely different industries where today's industry pertains to the industrial overhead doors and gates and then the other industry we make products for our pedestrian power operated pedestrian doors so those are two very different industry so I, we manage both of those industries. And uh, last bullet point I'll say here unlike Steve and his vintage Japanese motorcycles, I prefer a, a device with wheels without that does not use gasoline and uh, I prefer to use my legs to propel forward. So I am a competitive cyclist it is what it is. so that's uh, that's that's kind of what we do. All right, let's continue on.
1: So, talk a little bit about about what UL is, and uh, I'm just going to divide it into into two things. UL kind of wears two hats, if you will. Um, The first one is research and standards writing body. We're talking about UL 325, so you probably know UL writes standards. Uh, Over 1,700 standards UL has published in the past. Many other standards um, that you may have heard about in, in the industry too. UL also participates on standards panels for other standards writers, whether it's CSA or IEC or NSF. We also participate with industry groups such as DASMA, BHMA, uh, and other organizations. Uh, And also UL does quite a bit of research. It's part of our not-for-profit operation. We do a lot of fire research, uh, research on lithium batteries, uh, electric shock research, and eventually that makes its way out to industry and into standards. Um, The other hat that UL wears, if you will, is as a testing and certification company. And that's probably what a lot of people see when they see a UL mark. That's the side of UL that's actually doing that. We work with manufacturers to help evaluate products and assess them against the standards that apply. And if they're compliant, then we allow them to put the UL mark on the product. So that's kind of the two parts of UL, um, the standards writing, research, and then the testing and certification part. A little bit of uh, history of UL and some of the specifics and some of the factoids, if you will. It's hard for me to believe, but 22 billion marks appear on products annually. We are in 159 uh, facilities throughout the world. I think it's now 54 countries that we're located in. And it says 10,000 employees, but I think we're up to about 14,000 now. But we help manufacturers globally to, to get their products to whatever markets they're going to, not only North America. Talk a little bit here about standard. And a little bit later on, we're going to be talking about Codes. And what is a code? But right now, I talk about a standard. And a standard, it's published, and it defines the minimum requirements that will be applied during testing to demonstrate that a product's been proven to conform to the consensus expectation for safe product design. And we'll talk about that a little bit more probably today. But the consensus expectation. So a standard is written not by some person at their desk in a corner of a building in isolation. It's actually written by the industry. And it's on the UL325 panel, for example, there's 50 Uh, members that actually get to vote at the end of the day. But it is a public process and represents viewpoints across the industry. And that's where we get the consensus expectation. Is every standard um, absolutely foolproof and risk-proof and perfectly safe um, for every application? No, you have to have a balance between the usefulness of a product and the safety. So that's where consensus expectation of safety comes in. If we look into the scope of UL325, Um, This is what you'll find. This is verbatim from the scope of UL325, and it covers operators for the doors, gates, windows, et cetera. So you're very familiar with that, say a residential garage or operator, so it covers operators. It also covers, in number 1.2, complete doors and gate systems. It also covers complete window systems, louver systems, so sometimes manufacturers produce the whole package together as one entity, and it's sold and installed like that together. So it covers the complete systems. And then it also covers in 1.3 accessories, such as uh, ones we'll talk about today, like external entrapment protector devices, such as photo eyes, edge sensors, etc. One of the slides that Jeff showed, uh, one of the quiz questions was what the product types are that are covered by UL325. So yes, it covers all these product types. Um, so I just wanted to reiterate that again and show this. Here's a picture of Another view of some of the product types that are covered, and this is showing everything from the pedestrian doors to the drapery and louver systems. And just wanted to say that we're going to focus on several ones today, um, which is the residential garage door operators, the commercial door operators, and then the gate operators, and specifically the entrapment protection that applies to those. Entrapment protection devices are also, of course, covered by UL325, um, and that's something we're going to talk about today. Typically, photo eyes, light curtains, edge sensors, wireless links, things like that. A little bit more about the history of UL three two five, and and hopefully things you could take away from here are not only you know what's covered by three two five, some of the specific requirements that we'll get into, but also you know a little bit about the history of how it came to be. It's you know twenty twenty one, and how long has the standard been around? How has it evolved over time? So that's a little bit that we're going to talk about now briefly. So the first edition was actually in nineteen seventy three. So before that, actually, UL did certify uh, door operators, gate operators, but it was to a different standard that didn't have many specifics at all for the products. So 1973 was the first edition. And since then, there's been seven editions, and now we're on the seventh edition. And the seventh edition was published about four years ago. It is adopted in Canada and the U.S. as a national standard. uh, And I already mentioned it's developed by the consensus process by the standards technical panel who actually does the voting on the standard. Over time, the standard has evolved and changed to keep up with technology and keep up with the use of the products that we see in the field and safety issues included, and to keep up with new products and applications. So here's just some major milestones that have occurred over time. Uh, That starts with 73 as the the first edition. 1993, some of you who have been around in the industry may have been around at that time. Um, if not, you've probably heard of that date. That's when residential garage operators were first required to have photo eyes or a secondary entrapment protection device. Uh, the year 2000 was when the gate operator requirements uh, first became effective in the standard. And you could see some of the other milestones there that you could read on the screen. The bottom one is the most recent um, updates to the standard uh, occurred last year, uh, February 2020. So some uh, revisions were made to the standard. I did mention already it's developed by a consensus process. There are some links below, and I believe a version of this uh, presentation will be available somehow to uh, participants so that you could go to any one of those links. If anybody wants to participate in the standards process, it is free to do so. It is open to the public. Um, anybody can submit a proposal. It's done online. You can sign up for a free account at CSDS, that stands for Collaborative Standard Development System, and you could submit your proposal. And really, that's as simple as it is. Um, and then that proposal is posted for public review and comment. And then after all the comment stages, at the end of the day, those 50 people on the standards panel get to vote. If anyone's interested in becoming a member of the standards panel, here's just a a snapshot of some of the people that are on the panel, and it's not meant for you to read all these. It's just to show that there's a number of people on there from diverse uh, companies and interest groups, Um, but uh, it's free to make an application to apply to be part of the standards panel also. And we try to keep it balanced so it's not overweighted by any one specific interest group or segment of the industry. So if you're interested in joining the standards panel as a voting member, go ahead and submit an application. The standard is divided. This is UL325. If you open up the cover page, you get to an index. And this is how the standard is divided. These are the major sections in the standard. It covers things such as construction, external entrapment protection, uh, performance tests, all the way down to instruction manual, what needs to be in there, and the markings that have to be on the product. When we talk about UL325, and you know the products that we're going to talk about today, residential garage operators, commercial operators, gate operators, and systems, these sections that are highlighted in red are very critical, the external entrapment protection devices and the performance of these products. So we'll be talking about that quite a bit. Basically, you want to make sure they're doing their job properly, they're achieving the level of protection that you want, and they're doing so reliably. So that's a little bit about the background of UL and UL325. We're going to move forward now and talk more specifics about residential garage door operators and entrapment protection, commercial door operators and entrapment protection, gate operators and entrapment protection, and then also about entrapment protection itself. So jumping into residential operators. These for you, those of you who are on the market in the market and in the, in the business of residential, this is probably familiar to you, but there's many types of doors out there. It's not just a sectional overhead door. Um, there's of course, the sectional overhead door, but the overhead one piece door, which are still out there. There's horizontal sliding doors now. And not on this slide, but in some applications, we're starting to see roll up doors in residential applications too. But they're all covered by 325 and they have some unique concerns with uh, you know entrapment and where the entrapment zones are. Of course, the operators that drive these devices, you got a trolley operator. Um, a direct drive trolley operator. Some of you may have seen those in the market. Jack shaft operator. And of course, if you're talking about a rolling door or overhead roll up door, you have an operator specifically to that. So, UL 325, up at the top is a definition, and that's actually verbatim from the standard, calls a residential garage door operator, is a vehicular door operator serving a residential building of one to four single family units. And those are key sometimes some people say, well, is this an industrial application or is this a commercial application and what operator should I use and what entrapment protection do I need? So if you're talking residential, uh, this is what it is. And the standard covers those risks that are listed there, risk of electric shock, risk of fire, risk of mechanical injury, and risk of entrapment. You'll hear that quite a bit today. Risk of entrapment is covered by the standard and how it addresses it is by inherent systems, kind of like the inherent reversal system where you're tested with a two by four out in the field, control systems, external devices, and markings and placards and instructions. Those are all part of the umbrella of how entrapment protection is addressed. So if we break it down for residential garage door operators, what does it really boil down to in terms of entrapment protection and how to comply with the standard? So, I listed all the, I guess, a summary of the relevant requirements that would apply. So, for a residential garage operator, the first bullet you have is primary entrapment protection. That's the inherent reversal system. That's the thing most people think about. Like I said, in the field, you put a two by four under there. In the laboratory, we use a, a specific test object so that it's repeatable and we do that test. So, the two second reversal is probably the most common and basic safety feature for residential operators. The second bullet, is secondary entrapment protection. For residential operators, it is required to have secondary entrapment protection, a monitored external device. And that's usually a photo eye, sometimes an edge sensor. There's some exceptions to that rule. For most people, you put, it, you put a photo eye on the operator, that's how the operator is intended to operate and it cannot operate until you have a monitored photo eye on there or an edge sensor. There are exceptions that are listed at the bottom there. If the only way to control your door or make it close is pressing and holding a wall button, you have to press and hold the wall button that's in view of the door for the whole time that it's traveling downwards, then you don't need a photowire edge sensor. I don't know of one manufacturer that actually sells a system configured that way because people really want the convenience of pressing the button and um, just letting the door go down on its own. Um, It also, the third bullet requires a 30 second run timer or a door position system. That's another inherent system on the circuit board, um, just to make sure that the door doesn't run forever if there's a problem. So there's other safety requirements that I listed at the bottom, manual release, control button location, warning labels and instructions, which all play a part in here. But the main takeaways for these discussions are the inherent system and the monitored external. So when we talk about external entrapment protection, so again, think photo eye or edge sensor, here's some requirements that are taken from the standard. And for an operator, for a vertically moving door, the secondary entrapment protection device, so think external device, shall meet A, B, or C. So it should be a photoelectric eye installed to protect the door opening, or it should be B, an edge sensor installed on the bottom edge, or it could be an inherent door sensor that's separate from the inherent entrapment protection. That's a little known option in the UL325 standard there used to be two products on the market years ago that had an inherent door sensor system that was extremely sensitive. And if it hit any object, it was calibrated to stop and reverse with very, very limited force. Um, I don't know of any that are on the market right now with that. So most people use A or B right now. Again, there's a, a couple, it's quite a few, UL325 is 185 pages. So there's quite a few more requirements in there. This is just a, a small uh, snippet of some of the other details that apply for uh, entrapment protection. When you get into 325, if you're a manufacturer and you're trying to get a certification for a residential garage operator or for an external device such as a photo wire edge sensor, there's quite a few tests that are conducted on the operator, on the external device, and on the combination. The standard has diagrams to help explain those tests Um, Here's just an example of a couple of the diagrams. We're not going to go in detail about these, but here's testing an edge sensor to make sure it's going to activate properly. Um, The swinging pendulum. By the way, can you guys see my mouse moving there?
0: Yeah, I see
1: it, Steve. Yeah, okay, good. Just want to make sure. A swinging pendulum for a photo eye to simulate like a child walking through there. Uh, a sunlight test on the photo eye to make sure it's not going to obliterate the photo eye to the point where it's not working properly, and more tests on edge sensors. Uh, here's another diagram showing some of the tests on photo eyes. There's a static test we do with a six inch high by 12 inch wide object in the path of the door. To make sure the photo eye is mounted uh, properly and at the proper height in order to detect that. And again, the pendulum test. So that's just uh, some of the tests we do for residential garage operators and some of the requirements for external entrapment protection. Um, We're gonna get more into external entrapment protection devices later. Um, Some of you may have heard of unattended operation there's only a few people that work with residential operators i'm gonna go very quickly through this if anyone has questions about unattended operation afterwards feel free to to contact me or contact jeff Um, but unattended operation basically is if you want to control your garage door and close it from other than the wall button in your garage or the keypad right outside your garage or remote control or like home link system in your car if you want to control it some other way which you can now do with your mobile phone So anybody here can use their mobile phone and go ahead and close their door if they have that uh, app and that provision. You can do that. It adds a lot of convenience, right? Perhaps it adds some security, but it also adds a little bit of risk because you're not there in the vicinity of the door like you would with all those other control mechanisms. So the industry embraced this and said, yeah, we want this advancements in technology, but it comes not at the sacrifice of safety. So it's required. Here's the next slide. It's required to have all these features. That's in addition to your regular residential garage wrapper. It now has to have all these features in order for that mobile phone operation, or it's called unattended operation, to to work. When you press your phone to close your door, it has to flash the light for five seconds. It has to have an audible alert for five seconds. Um, It can only try to close twice, and then it has to lock itself out. And you have to be local in order to override that. So there's a number of provisions that your operator has to have in order for that to work properly. And it's only compatible with certain operators. So be careful the ones, if you're in the field actually installing these, uh, you're probably doing the right thing, but there may be people in the field that are not doing the right thing. And they're just picking one off of online that's the cheapest system and connecting it to their operator. And I've seen a number of them that do not have the proper safety features in there, but they're being sold on the market. So just be an educated consumer. Uh, I'll touch on instruction manuals. I'll just do this once, but it also applies to uh, commercial door operators and it applies to gate operators. Uh, you hear people professing about this all the time. The instruction manuals are critical. There's a lot of information in there about how to install the operator, what application it can and cannot be used on, is it configurable for unattended operation, how high and where you need to place the photo wise. Um, so it's, it's very important. There's a lot of critical information in there. Here's an example of what type of information needs to be in the instruction manuals. And this is just a snippet of some information. And I highlighted in yellow there. It has to talk about the external or secondary entrapment protection devices, such as photo eyes and edge sensors, and make sure that they're installed with the operator, explains the proper mounting heights, distances, alignments, that type of thing. So I did have a quiz question here. So Jeff, I'll ask you to monitor the answers so you should be logged in already on your phone, so you don't have to log in again. So all you have to type is A if you want to answer yes, or B if you want to answer no. So here's the question. In the US, is a residential garage door operator required to have a set of photo eyes? We kind of just covered this. It's not intended to be a trick question, but it is intended to spark some discussion. I like when I'm talking to uh, an educated body of industry professionals, like I. Uh, like online today. So I was talking to some consumers at home um, that aren't in in the industry, I would explain this a little bit differently. So Jeff, what are we up to with the answers? So
0: Steve, so far we have four that have answered yes and one that have answered no.
1: Okay. So let me just pause there also in the interest of time. Five Um,
0: yes, one no.
1: (laughs) So the the takeaway, I'll say that the takeaway when you walk out of here, is yeah, you got to have photo eyes on your garage door operator, right? That's what everybody knows. That's the takeaway. Stick to that story, okay? <laughs> if you read some of the slides that I just presented, and if you look in 325, you have options. Instead of a photo eye, you could use an edge sensor. That's an option. When it first came out in 1993, there were actually a number of edge sensors people were putting on their garage doors instead of photo eyes. They provide, quote unquote, equivalent level of protection. So the correct answer here is actually no. It's not required to have a set of photo eyes. You could have an edge sensor instead of photo eyes. And if you remember, I also explained, you could configure your operator to just press and hold that wall button for the full travel downward of the door. In that case, you don't need a photo eye either. I don't know anyone who does that, but that's an option technically in the standard. So I say the takeaway is, look, we've done a great job as an industry training consumers. Put your photo eye on there. Photo eyes a safety device mounted properly. Um, and you can rely on that. So that's really the takeaway out there in the field. But just so you guys know, you folks know a little bit more involved in the industry, there are other options. So uh, that's the takeaway from this slide. The next uh, question, let me see if that comes up. All right, so what height is a photo eye for an overhead garage door required to be mounted? So you have four choices there. A is, not more than six inches from the ground to the bottom of the photo eye, because the photo eye may be, you know, two or three inches high, you know, it, its package, its enclosure that it's in. Or B, not more than six inches from the ground to the top of the photo eye, or C, not more than six inches from the ground to the midpoint, or D, whatever the instructions say that might be specific for that product type. And Jeff, I'll leave it to you to yeah. clue us in when you're ready.
0: Steve, and so this is relative to residential uh, overhead doors or commercial overhead doors, or does it even matter while we're tallying the responses?
1: So, good question. Uh, It doesn't matter. It actually applies equally to a residential overhead garage door or a commercial overhead garage door. The requirement for the mounting uh, height is the same.
0: Okay, we have eight replies we have two with not more than six inches from the ground which would be a then we have one b and two c and three whatever the instruction says
1: all right so a little bit of mixed bag there and uh it's really whatever the instructions say because the manufacturers who make the operators decide what photo eyes can be used with their operator and then they say this is how high you have to mount them And like, I remember I said that the the package of the photo eye might be two inches high, the package could be six inches high on the photo eye. So where do you actually mount it? So the manufacturers have to declare exactly how to mount it. And then UL does a test. And the test that UL does actually puts a six inch high object in the path of the door. This is the diagram on the left to make sure that the photo eye, wherever the instructions say to mount it, is going to pick up that six inch high object. So this is like, I'd say insider information if you want to, but it's in the standard, right? This is exactly what's in the standard. The takeaway when you're talking to consumers and your customers and you're installing your photo eye is yeah, install it at six inches, you know, and, and, you know, that's the approximate appropriate height. If you see it up at three feet and it's on a door, probably not the right place for that photo eye, right? <laughs> Um, But uh, it's really whatever the instructions say, because they could say four inches, they could say five and a half inches, and you want to install it properly. Okay, just in the interest of time, I'm going to skip this question here. It was about unattended operation, and we had talked about that. So I'm going to go to the next section on commercial door operators, and I'm going to walk through it similarly as I did for residential. Except the commercial door operators, I know seemingly a little less complicated and um, uh, more direct and to the point. The standard does cover all these different types of commercial and industrial door systems. So it's not just the overhead sectional door that you might see at a oil change place or a car dealership, but it covers dock doors, folding doors, high performance doors, rolling doors, quite a few different door types and door operators that run those doors. Here's a couple pictures of sliding applications. Um, There's some pictures here of some operators. This is for an overhead sectional door. You might have a trolley type operator or a jack shaft operator. Um, Here's some uh, rolling uh, steel doors. We cover the operators for those and we cover the whole system. If manufacturers submit the whole system together, there's also... Uh, The high-performance doors, you know, the fabric, the vinyl roll-up doors uh, cover the operators for that. Of course, the external devices for that also. And if they submit it as a system, cover the whole system. The standard addresses commercial doors very similarly. There's a definition up there. I won't read it to you, but you can look in 325 and uh, you could find this definition uh, probably online. But the standard addresses it similarly. Address the risks of electric shock, fire, mechanical injury, and entrapment. And it addresses the risk of entrapment by the control and activation devices by the external devices that are required such as your photo eyes and edge sensors and by markings placards and instructions if we boil down what are the entrapment protection requirements for a commercial door operator the first bullet point is it required to have a monitored external trap and protection device so the operator when it's sent out from the factory, either it has to have the external device with it or it has to have provision for connection of it. And it has to be for a monitor device. And the instructions have to specify exactly what to do and what type of device to connect there. Also, the second one is a constant contact control is required to be mounted within line of sight and, and five feet above the floor. So if you choose, which you can, for a commercial door application, same as residential, if the only way to close that, commercial door is by pressing and holding the button that's within line of sight of the door, then you don't need the external device that you have to press and hold that button with it. So you're basically serving as the trap protection watching that door. But if you want the door to close for any other mechan- with any other means, like a timer, like a loop sensor, like a press the button and walk away or a remote control, well, then you have to uh, have an external device connected. There's also placards and warnings and instructions that need to be provided. And those are some of the placards on the bottom, um, depending on the commercial door type that you have. If it's an overhead door, you'd have that placard. If it's a horizontally moving door, you'd have that or perhaps you have a combination placard to warn against both. Commercial door systems, when you have the external device, a monitored external device, which is the most common application, um, because people don't want to press and hold the button all the time, so most of them have external devices. So you can choose from a lot that are on the market. The commercial applications, there's probably a lot more choices than for residential. Here are just some of them. The photo eyes, a point-to-point photo eye, a retro-reflective photo eye, various edge sensors, and of course the light curtains, um, which are which are common on some applications. So that was the commercial door. A section. And like I said, it's simpler and straightforward and just boiled down to, hey, if you're going to close your door automatically, you have to have a monitored external device.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Making Sense of Automation. We hope
1: you found the discussion interesting. All episodes of Making Sense of Automation are available on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button
0: BEA hosts a live Making Sense of Automation webinar every month. Visit
1: beasensors.com for more information on the program and how to register. Have a great day.